Cause we're living in a material world and I am a material girl. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the uh, broadcast. I've got a quite packed episode this week. I've got to talk about the Japanese Grand Prix. I have to talk about Big Brother having the most pointless week in Big Brother history and people nearly dying on Survivor and you've got to get your weekly Taylor Swift's fans being psychopaths update. So let's get into it. So before the Japanese Grand Prix, we got an announcement that both Danny Ricardo and Yuki Sonoda will continue to race for Alpha Tauri in 2024, essentially benching Liam Lawson for a further season. But there is rumor that he has been guaranteed a seat for 2025, so we'll have to wait and see about that. People want him to replace Sergeant at Williams for next season, but I don't really see the logic in that from Williams' perspective, in that Vowles has always said that they see Logan as a two-year project and that this season was just to get him up to grips with F1. But then it would essentially be a, re- a rental because Red Bull would want him back at AlphaTauri when Sergio Perez inevitably gets the boot. I think it's the wrong call to pick Danny over Liam, but I do at least see the logic in it. He has a more experience so he can help develop the car, but at the same time, I don't really understand what the end goal is. If it's to get him back into the Red Bull alongside Max, great. Just give him the C. But to keep Danny Ricardo at Alpha Tauri for another year when you've got Liam Lawson who's showed that he's ready. But other than the marketability, I don't get it. In qualifying, there wasn't anything really too crazy. Uh, Logan Sargent bends it around the final corner in Q1. And if anything, you've got to at least give him a bit of credit because he fully committed to binning it. I think I heard someone say that the amount of crashes Logan has had means that Williams are pretty much completely out of parts. So in order to get more parts made for him, it's hampering upgrades. So that's a little unfortunate. Liam Lawson almost snuck into Q3 and then Yuki Sonoda did get into Q3 at his home race. Max took the result in Singapore as a personal attack and then qualified on pole by over half a second, which I read that... I'm pretty sure that's the largest margin at Suzuka since Michael Schumacher back in 2004, but it might have actually been larger than Schumi's in 2004. And then that was in front of a McLaren 2-3 with Oscar out-qualifying Lando. And to be honest, McLaren does need a massive kudos to go from where they were in Bahrain and Saudi, where they were pretty much back with Alpha Terry's the worst car on the grid to now having four podiums that has largely been on merit that really can't be understated and what that team's done so at the race um max gets a good reaction um and then he goes to cut off oscar who also got a good jump but then he almost leaves enough space for lando and lando nearly uh, takes him into turn one to get the lead kind of like almost what happened in uh, Silverstone earlier this year Perez got sandwiched coming down the main straight and at the, at the point I was just like oh for fuck's sake Sergio Perez does what Sergio Perez does best but since re-watching the start of that race again I don't really think there's much more he could have done to avoid the situation and then Albon had a little bit of air 
after I think Ocon hit Bottas and then Bottas hit him. And then to clean up all the all of the shenanigans that happened then on lap one, we had a safety car going on to lap two. And now at this point, it's Sergio Perez does what Sergio Perez does best. And he got a penalty for overtaking Alonso while he was going into the pits because I don't think there's a speed limiter on the car for the pit lane during a safety car. But at the same time, you can't overtake if you're coming into the pits and the person in front is staying out. He then comes out of the pits at racing speed like he completely forgot they were on a safety car. But when he realized what happened, he'd given the places back. Initially, that's what I thought he got the penalty for was overtaking onto the safety car. And I was like, that's a little bit harsh because he did give the places back. But it turns out what actually happened was that it was for when he overtook Alonso going into the pits. And then he also tried to dive bomb Magnussen, uh, tried to take it from too far back and then didn't have enough time and then just takes Magnussen out completely. And then he retires the car a few laps later. But then Red Bull ends up unretiring the car because there's a rule that it states that if there's a penalty that's given to a driver and the driver cannot serve the penalty, either it be through uh, time being added at the end of the race to their finishing time or through a pit stop, then the FIA can give them a grid place penalty at the next race. And I don't really get why red bull would do this it's essentially just a three place grid penalty they've got the best car on the grid by far but then when i was listening to um engine breaking uh their podcast dan did raise a good point that red bull might not be confident that checo is going to be able to hold on to second in the standings because as it stands right now hamilton is only 33 points behind them with six races so Red Bull might be trying to do everything in their power to hold on to second, which kind of makes sense. I mean, he's got the best car and he has finished ahead of Hamilton in like four of the last six races or something. So it does make sense as to why you would back Perez, but he's also known to have an absolute wild one from time to time. Wiles happened in the race. America declared war in on Finland and sleeper agent Logan Sargent was awoken and then just drove right into the side of Bottas in what could only really be described as an ambitious maneuver and some people describe it as fucking stupid. The Mercedes had a bit of a fight and George started crying on the radio of are we fighting each other or others after Lewis pretty much drove him completely off the track. It was almost as if Lewis was reminding George of who the world champion was on the team and to remember his place. Mercedes did have a stupid call when they wanted to invert. I think at the time George was ahead of Lewis and they wanted to invert so that Lewis was ahead. But at the same time, Carlos Sainz was right behind them with DRS. And I can't remember if Sainz got through with Lewis or if it was a lap either, but essentially it made the swap completely pointless because I think Sainz ended up overtaking them both anyway. And I think even Lewis was just like, well, that was fucking pointless. Carlos always also started crying about how the Mercedes were using the DRS against him, like what he used with Lando in Singapore. And at the end of the race, Max won and secured Red Bull, the Constructors' Championship. They're six total and they're second in a row. 2023, 2022, and I think Mercedes won it in 2021. So yeah, they're second consecutive, sixth total. McLaren's ended up in second and third. Lando coming second and Piastri third. Piastri did feel a little shaky and he was also 
completely off the pace compared to Lando. I think he was like 20 seconds behind him or something. But it shouldn't really take Piastri that long to, to develop the race pace and kind of ability to manage his tires. So yeah, well done to the McLarens getting another podium and both of them on the podiums. I think Piastri probably did deserve to have a, a podium this season with how well he's been driving. And that's kind of all I have to say. There wasn't a whole lot more. It was a good race. That's kind of it. And then on Big Brother, this was a nothing week. There was no head of household. There was no power of veto. There was no eviction. Instead, the entire week was centered around the battle back on Thursday, which means the double eviction we had last week was pretty much fucking pointless. Because we're just in the exact same position had it just been a one eviction and another eviction. We'd have the same number of people in the house. Remember Riley? Remember her? She was evicted on, what, like, day 16? Jordan Cannon's battle back was on, I think, day 58. So it means that in those 42 days, only three people, Hysom, Red, and Izzy, have been evicted. I understand that battle backs are a big part of Big Brother, but they don't reward good gameplay. They're given to people that have had shitty gameplay and been booted out of the house and probably will get booted out of the house so they give an opportunity again because why wouldn't you? It's a really easy vote that people that are already in the house that haven't been evicted can come together on. In this season so far we have had Jag who at the time of being saved from eviction had no game and wasn't doing anything other than just being a body and then we had Cam and Jared who weren't really that good at the game. Cam could at least win competitions. Jared did win in a couple of competitions too, but neither of them had very good social gameplay, which is what you need to go deep into Big Brother. As it stands now, only Matt and Corey are the only men left in this house that have not been technically evicted. Two of five. Three have technically been evicted. Anyway, Jared and Cam walked back into the house and then Corey sat there like, oh shit. I'm pretty responsible for both of these two knobheads getting out of the house. They might target me now. Hashtag Wartenberger intensifies. I had to re-watch this episode, the episode on Sunday, because I live in Austin and the CBS meteorologist was having a mental breakdown about hail for about 25 minutes. The doorbell rang and then it cut to the news of him telling people that are already at home watching TV to get inside because hail is going to murder everybody. And then when we got back to Big Brother, Cam and Jared were back in the house and putting balls into giant spades. So upon a rewatch, they had to dig up the balls that were in a grave and then transport all of them across a balance beam and balance the balls in the spade so that none of them fall out. But if they do, then they need to start over. But why did they make it so complicated? First off, it was done in three rounds instead of just one round. That was probably to make it easier to cut between episodes. But then, it was announced that the winner of this challenge won't be back in the house, but instead, they would get to decide who competes in the Battle Back Challenge on Thursday. So it's a challenge to decide who competes in a challenge. What is this final three already? If the person wins the challenge on Thursday, they re-enter the house, and if they lose, the other person enters. If Jar's picked, then it'll probably be like a two-piece puzzle that isn't ever to finish, and if Cam is picked, then you'll have to complete one of the Millennium Prize puzzles within 35 seconds. Do you know what the Millennium Prize puzzles were? There were these seven problems that were released by Clay Mathematical Institute back in 2000, and they were basically pledged to 
give anyone that solved them a million dollars, or the first person to solve them a million dollars. And 23 years later, still only one has been solved of the seven. I'm kidding, obviously, but it does seem like production would prefer Jared to go back into the house. And it's not like, unlike Americans, to interfere with shit that they don't like. I'm not suggesting that is happening, but it's not unreasonable to suggest that CBS production are, are interfering with Big Brother because they want a Suri win. Because she's never going to win Survivor at this point. I just feel like Cam would bring a bit more chaos into the house, even if he is on thin ice for referring to himself as daddy at least once an episode. Whereas I feel like Jared would just go right back to Suri and then immediately blow up his own game at the first opportunity because there's zero social awareness. So what happened? Well, they come back into the house and Jared immediately blows up his own game because he has zero social awareness. And then Cam kind of realized what Jared was going to do. So then he just does the opposite and just it's just like, I'm just going to stay Cam. I don't need to make waves in the house. That's not going to help me long term. And then Jared, yeah, he blows up his own game by having a go at Blue for not telling him that Corey was targeting him. But how did Jared not realize that Corey would come after him? He must have the fucking social awareness of a goldfish. You just put him on the block alongside America. You and him had a blow up in the have-not room where you both essentially thought you couldn't work with each other long term. And you were both clearly on two different sides of the house. But sure, okay, you made a final two pact on day one. So obviously, Corey would not target you. Something I do feel that, or something that I don't like, is that there should have been some type of punishment for Cam and Jared. Whether it be that they're sequestered in the unused HOH room. Or they're the only have-nots for the week. Or send them to the nether. Or some shit. Just something. Give them something where it's not comfortable for them in the house. Do you remember the nether? They used it like once and then they probably urban dictionaryed what nether region meant. And then they quickly scrapped it. But in CBS shows, the production talks about expect the unexpected. This is Survivor Animation Race 2. This isn't just a Big Brother thing. But when you throw random shit in the game to mix it up... But then, in order to counter the unexpected, the house guests or survivors play it safe and make the safe opportunity, or the safe move at every opportunity, you can't then get upset. Matt essentially used a survivor-style super idol on Jag a few weeks ago. And it's obvious that they're just wanting to elongate the season because of the writer strike. At this point, they're not even hiding it. So anyway, Cam wins the initial challenge and has the power to decide who competes on Thursday. He chooses himself and the challenge is basically that snake challenge from Survivor. Where you have to maneuver a ball on a ledge through the maze and into a hole. But instead of getting it into the head of the snake, they have to get it into the hand of the zombie. And he has three minutes to do it. Initially, I thought he had to do all three in three minutes. I was like, that's fuck. That's fucked. He's not going to get that. But then I realized it was only one that he had to do. Anyway, Cam completes the puzzle with over a minute to spare. So then Cam is back in the house and Jared is officially evicted. Then the handful minus Riley start talking about teaming back up. Cam even mentioning the brigade because you can't go into a season of Big Brother without trying to compare yourself to the Brigade or the Hitmen or the Renegades. Basically, you can't go into Big Brother without naming an iconic alliance. But this week was pointless, and I hated it. Production. But this week was pointless, and I hated it. And I'm going to move on because I'm going to pop a fucking blood vessel thinking about it. We're back on. We've got HOH again, and it's back to normal. This is the last week before jury, so yeah. But what else is back is Survivor. 
with 90 minutes episodes and a theme song next week. It didn't come this week or in the premiere. And they have supermarket sweep tricolors. We got we got a maroon in kind kind of. It was essentially just the stereotypical first day challenge, but on a boat instead of on the beach. And Bruce didn't nearly decapitate himself this time. Speaking of Bruce, he spoke on the map about how he doesn't really have an advantage coming from forty four, probably because he doesn't remember any of it. And Emily on the Yellow Tribe then basically says he's talking bollocks. It was so needless because. In a tribe of six, you don't really have anywhere to hide. And just being vocal against someone else in the other tribe and shit-stirring can and probably might get you voted out if you lose the first challenge. Some other girl, I think it was on Bruce's tribe, the Blue Tribe, her, her opening remark was, I'm a Libra. Send her to jail! So anyway, we have the day one challenge. Brandon couldn't climb a rope ladder, and then he crawled over to the mat and acted like he was about to die. This was also just after crying in the intro portion on the mat. Obvious first boot. Unless Emily decides to blow up her own game because if you aren't first, you're last. Her words. Remember when Carson was open about how much preparation he did for 44 and the Survivor subreddit had a mental breakdown because he was breaking the game? Well, Brandon seems to have done the opposite of that. The Red Tribe wins the day one challenge because they're a single tribe that works too hard get it because they're they're named reba and this sends yellow and blue to do the do or die challenge however there was a twist instead of the tribes deciding on which of the two options they wanted to do the physical or the mental one they had to do both in an hour and if they don't then they don't get flint or a machete or anything the first portion was to carry 40 logs 200 feet down the beach and then the second portion was a puzzle that they had to like unlock the flint through it or some shit. I don't honestly don't remember what it was, but it was a puzzle. Was this tested before this was done? Because even if you average one log a minute between the two of you, considering you're probably going to slow down as you get tired with other with the logs later in the challenge, this is still going to eat up two thirds of the allotted time. Was Jonathan from Forty Two the one that tested this and he did that in like fucking ten minutes? Also, can we stop torturing the cast? I guess Survivor's supposed to be hard, but it's not fun watching them carry heavy logs down the beach for no fucking reason. Anyway, neither tribe succeeds and both tribes leave with nothing. At this point, we get to catch up with the tribes. On the red tribe, Wishbrand Cochrane says he has about seven different personalities and writes poetry while the rest of the tribe lie about their jobs. Sifu thinks he's Tony and tries to spy on the women's conversation at the war. Well, but gets caught. Sifu... This is day one. This is like some Dr. Mike level shit. Austin finds a beware advantage. It's great. We're doing these fucking again. Fucking hell, love them. But at least this time he doesn't lose his vote until Mike talks about how beautiful football is or how Nasir is a goat in the Astrodome or some shit. On the blue tribe, Bruce says he wants to be the fun uncle and not the dad of the tribe or the leader. And then he immediately starts acting like a leader. Brando and Jake return from the do or die challenge and they announce that they lost the chance but that the yellow tribe also lost it too. The women start talking about forming an all women's alliance because apparently women go out early in the new era. Hashtag Wartenberger intensifies. Then we get to catch up with the yellow tribe. Brandon gets kept behind after the challenge for medical checks after a bruised ego and acting like he was about to die. 
No one could build a shelter on this tribe, but don't worry. Hannah will sweep the forest for their non-existent shelter. She is also she also said that she isn't very survivorly. Why are you here? Brandon comes back and he's not dead, but he arrived on the beach and then immediately had to sit down. Caleb and Sabaya, Sabia, Sabaya return they from the challenge and they also say that they lost the challenge. Emmy, Emily then accuses them in a confessional about taking advantage. Maybe you should have gone to the challenge then, Emily. I don't hate Emily, but we all know someone like this. Brandon calls out the Survivor subreddit with a come out and try this if you think it's easy and the tribe starts scheming to get rid of the ne- of negative Nancy Emily. Emily has a confessional where she basically says Emily's hard to get along with, let's just vote her out. Why are you in a game based on social connections and awareness if you assume you're hard to get along with? This tribe is a fucking total mess and I'm here for it. Half the cast feels like first boots and it's like Gabon all over again. <laughs> So anyway, next up we get the challenge. The challenge is your typical first challenge from Survivor. You go over a V-shaped obstacle, slide down into a mud pit, crawling under bamboo prop, hashtag Bruce flashbacks intensifies, then under a net. Then the tribe have to drag a big bag of coconuts and two tribe members have to shoot them into a basket until it's heavy enough to release keys. They then need to get everyone up and over a wall, unlock a chest and a puzzle and then solve a puzzle. From the description of the of the, pos- of the challenge, can we guess who's going to lose? That's right. It's yellow. They're the Lulu's, you know. Get it? Because the tribe name is Lulu. But they did have a little bit of outside-the-box thinking at the wall when they start using their buffs to pull people up, which, fair enough. But yeah, we get back to camp, and it feels like the vote is either between Brandon, who says he had chest pains in the night, or Emily, the dead weight that no one likes. But it doesn't really matter who they vote out because the next one will just go to the next tribal anyway. But then, Hannah says to Brandon, maybe they can vote me out so I can go home, and starts campaigning against herself because she's hungry, wants a bed, and is going through nicotine withdrawals. Brandon then says he's going to play a shot in the dark. So now the vote is between a dude with chest pains a person who the rest of the tribe can't stand, and a woman literally begging people to vote her out. But then, Emily tries to get the votes to blindside Caleb because his and, Re- and Sabaya's relationship is a liability to her game. Her words. No, Emily, you are a liability to your game. It's like day three or some shit. Not everything needs to be a 500 IQ day 25 on day one David Samson-esque play. Just try and survive the first vote and take it from there. Especially when fucking Brandon's on your tribe. Oh, and then I think Sean's also here. I think that's his name. Is his name Sean? I think that's his name. It doesn't matter. So we get to tribal and Hannah once again asks to be voted out. And the tribe agrees to vote her out 5-0. to zero. Imagine being the female alternative for 45 and you see this. They should be given an automatic guaranteed spot in the following season. If I was Caleb, I would probably intentionally matching mat- the tribe and then just try and get himself and Sabai and maybe Sean as well to the merge because this group is is a is not even a sinking ship it's the titanic and he has no need to go down to it in a tin can with a logitech xbox controller now i wanted to give a little shout out to the liverpool tottenham match over the weekend for being some of the worst officiating that i've ever seen now this is the second time that i have tried to record this section because i went a bit off ta- on a tangent and just ended up get, getting angry so i'm recording it again 
So in the first 25 minutes of the match, it was fairly evenly matched. Liverpool had a goal where Robertson tees up a pass. I think it was Gakpo who then takes a shot and it's saved. And then Robertson goes for the loose ball after the save, takes a shot and it's also saved. These two shots increased Liverpool's XG, which people on Twitter were then using to be like, hey, look, Liverpool are the better side there. And they really weren't, to be honest. It was pretty evenly matched from both sides, but it was looking like a very good match and both teams were up for it. But this all changed in the 26th minute when Curtis Jones was sent off for Liverpool. The referee gets called to the screen and is shown an image of Jones catching Basuma's um, ankle. And the only videos are shown from kind of behind Basuma where you don't see that Jones does make contact with the ball. From the angles being shown it looks like Jones misses the ball entirely and just lays into Basuma. If we look at the rules and take zero other context of the situation it probably does have legs for being a red but if you take context and common sense then you have to take into account that it was a 50-50 ball and Jones does get contact with it, and the contact essentially just comes from momentum, from rolling over the ball, and it wasn't malicious and intentional. And then if you add that context into it, the initial yellow card that he got probably does stand, and the game is still 11 versus 11. Then eight minutes later after the red card for Jones, Mo has the ball. He slots it between two defenders to Luis Diaz. Luis Diaz then beats the defender and slots it into the far corner. 1-0 Liverpool. But then, the linesman has this flag up, and we see the replay, and Diaz is clearly onside. The commentators are also saying that he's clearly onside. So you're sat there like, well, okay. Well, VAR is going to overturn this, and the goal is going to stand. Not even 30 seconds later, it says check complete, and it was offside. Within 10 to 15 seconds, Spurs take the free kick, and the ball is in play. And apparently the rules state that once the kick is taken it can't be reversed but i distinctly remember man united getting awarded a penalty after the final whistle of a match but yeah reviewing re-reviewing a fair goal and overturning it is too late apparently uh, it, it doesn't make sense now the reasoning that came out after the fact was that apparently darren england who was on var for the match thought the call on the pitch was the ds's goal was confirmed to have been onside and the goal stood and that's why it came back as check complete as quickly as it did however i don't really believe that purely based off his track record against calls in matches that he officiates against Liverpool because it was Darren England that was on VAR at the Arsenal away match last season at the Emirates where Saka was offside for their first goal Gabe Gabriel twats it with his hand that was at shoulder height and uh, Gabriel Jesus drops like a sack of potatoes for a penalty all three massive calls that were given against Liverpool and it ended up being a 3-2 loss Darren England's reasoning was for the Saka goal was the camera wasn't in the correct place so he couldn't see that Saka was offside and then apparently your ball being at shoulder height is a natural location according to Darren England and then Jesus dives and then he gets a penalty call for it. Now if you want to give the Gabriel Jesus penalty call then fair enough there was contact and in the current state of the game a player is going to go down in that situation and probably going to get the call for it. But the other two were obvious incorrect calls by Darren England. Now, almost a year later, to the day, I think that was on October 10th, 2022. And then this was October 1st, I think. Or 
September 30th. It was the, it was during the weekend anyway. It is darn England that sent Curtis Jones off, and it's darn England that ruled Luis Diaz's goal as offside when it was onside. Shortly after this, Spurs then go one nil up because uh, through Son. Maka gets booked and then Udogi? Udoji? I'm not sure how you say his name. He then, he on Spurs, he also gets unfairly booked for a good tackle on Gakpo. He gets the ball and we'll come back to this. This tackle ends up injuring Gakpo and he lips into the box. Ball comes into him and he puts it into the back of the net. 1-1 Liverpool Spurs. He then goes down in pain and gets replaced by Jota for the second half. The second half starts and it's a pretty even match again. Even with a man down, Liverpool are matching Spurs. Liverpool even could arguably be said that they looked more threatening than Spurs did at the time. Spurs had a goal disallowed because of Richarlison being clearly offside. And he was offside by at least a yard, potentially more to be honest. Jota gets carded for a challenge on Udoji. Now, I mean, people saying that there was zero contact, but Jota does clip him if he launched the replay. But it's not yellow card worthy. It's not malicious. It was in his own half. It's a foul. Sure, I'll give them that. But it's not a yellow card. And then Jota gets a second yellow about a minute later for lunging in, missing the ball, and taking the player out. Now, that's definitely worthy of a yellow card, but Udoji then starts pretending to wave a card around which i think is a bookable offense in the premier league i think the rules state that if you try and get another player booked then you also get booked so Udoji should also be off because this would be his second yellow even though he shouldn't have been off because his first yellow shouldn't have happened but it was and he and he was booked so jean is sent off but with the context and with using a little bit of common sense you would think that the referee would talk to him and take him to a side and basically look the only reason that you're not walking down the tunnel right now with a second yellow is because i just carded you you're on thin ice though settle the fuck down or you will be off so Jota is away down the tunnel and klopp has to make a change he takes mo gomez and diaz off and brings on trent Kanati, and endo and then we're playing with a back five of Robbo, Van Dijk, Matip, Kanate, and Trent. And then a midfield three of McAllister, Slobislai, and Endo. And then about five minutes later, he takes McAllister off for grabbing Birch. At this point, the game just completely falls apart. Robertson gets a yellow in the 87th minute, Basuma in the 88th minute, Romero in the 89th minute, Van Dijk in the 95th minute, and then the own goal to put Spurs 2-1 off. Immediately after the match, the PGMOL released a statement that was probably AI written, basically saying that serious human error occurred in the overturning of Luis Diaz's goal. It's an explanation, it's not an apology, and they've not taken accountability for it. They've just said this happened. A lot of journalists have also come out and having a pop at Liverpool, playing into the all-was-the-victims bullshit, like what Fibo TV Canada's uh, posted in a now-deleted Instagram post. And they're saying shit like, well, if Liverpool are demanding the game be replayed, then we would need to replay the cha- 2009 Champions League final because of the penalty at the start of the match. And then if we replay the 2005 or 2019 Champions League final, we would then have to play the 2005 Champions League semi-final against Chelsea because there's debate on whether Luis Gar- Garcia's goal was in- went actually over the goal line or not. Look, you can't change the results retroactively because that will open the floodgates of of teams just wanting to contest any result that they think they were hard done by in but no one at liverpool is asking for a replay this is all coming from the media hello edit and michael here to 
update some things on this that have happened since I recorded this because I'm an investigative journalist with journalistic integrity. So in the Europa League, uh, the pre-match interview, Klopp was asked about this and he basically said as a football fan that it should be replayed but not as the manager of Liverpool is saying that. And basically all major publications are running with Klopp wants the match to be replayed. So I've got the official quote here. Are you ready for the quote? It says, The audio didn't change it at all because I was not interested in why things happened. I saw the outcome. I saw a goal. We scored and it didn't count. So I was not waiting for the audio and sitting there and hoping I find out how it could happen. It's really important that as big as football is, we really need to deal with it in a proper way. All of the people involved on the field, ref, linesman, fourth official and especially now in this case VAR they didn't do it on purpose we should not forget that it was an obvious mistake not as a manager of Liverpool so much more as a football person I think the only outcome should be a replay probably will not happen the argument against that will probably be that if we open the gate then everyone will ask for it I think the situation is that unprecedented that something like that and as far as I can remember, never happened. That's why a replay should be the right thing. Now, a replay is not going to happen. And I'll tell you why. Because if, say this happens and there's a replay. And then Liverpool wins. Um, and then they go on to win the title by less than three points. Then that title in the eyes of everyone else in football is not going to count as a legitimate title. So I would rather lose because of this and whinge about it until I go to the grave than when in a similar situation. Okay, so back to your regularly scheduled podcast after this update. Okay, bye. What they're wanting is the reasoning given between the refs and VAR as to why Diaz's goal was ruled offside and whatever happened to make sure it won't ever happen again. I'm actually starting to get pissed off again, so I'm actually going to just move on. And now we're on to your Taylor Swift fans doing something stupid weekly update. So, Taylor Swift was seen at the Kansas City Chiefs game last weekend because she's allegedly dating Travis Kelsey, or at least going on a date. They were seen leaving together. She was in the box with his mom, but I'm not really, I'm not here to talk about that, mostly because I don't care about a celebrity that doesn't know I exist is dating another celebrity that doesn't know I exist. I don't care. Unless it's Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively, they must be protected. I'm kidding, because in about 10 years' time, he's going to be the owner of a team in the Premier League, and that is a threat to Liverpool, at which point I'll probably be slagging him off. After, on the Monday after the Chiefs game, it was a rumour that spread on social media that Taylor Swift was having a meal at some restaurant in Lawrence, Kansas. Do you know where that is? I actually had to look it up. It's between Kansas City and Topeka, and only really notable because uh, because some sports teams disguised as a university is based there. This rumour quick, uh, quickly grew legs, and because Swifties are psychotic, and before you knew it, the roads were lined up with copy-paste of the same blonde girl trying to get a glimpse of the leader blonde girl so that they can post it and get like 30 likes on Instagram. It's pointless. The obsessive members of her fan base are getting out of hand. First, they lined the streets of a wedding she was at. Then they caused seismic activity in Seattle, according to the news. And now they're lining up in Kansas only because of a rumor that she was there. She wasn't actually there. They were even lining up in the back alley of the restaurant 
that it was she was allegedly at just in case she went out the back she was never there you brain dead morons this is not normal behavior send them to jail before they get themselves or someone else killed these obsessions with the with where she is who she's dating with the exception of matt healy because he's a creep and that and what she does in her personal life is not normal parasocial relationships are not a new thing they have probably been around for the same amount of time the celebrities have been around however the view into someone's life that social media now gives you is felt so much more common for parasocial relationship to exist but i sometimes feel like taylor has almost like redefined what a parasocial relationship is and has structured her entire business off of it and it does work brilliantly for her i mean the eras 2 is literally making billions of dollars but at some point this is going to reach a boiling point because obsessive one-sided relationships are not healthy for anyone it's not healthy on the fan because they're obsessing over someone that doesn't know they exist and probably won't ever know they exist but at the same time it's not healthy for the recipient of the parasocial relationship the celebrity because whenever obsessive fans do something or or act like fucking idiots then they look bad because of it and are held accountable so i've done a bit of research into taylor playing into parasocial relationships are you ready for the research so first off she has been known to invite fans to her house for album parties before the release of a new album unlike susan boyle who had sue's anal bum party but and this isn't a new thing other artists do album parties with fans it's just they don't literally do them at their house she's written journals and released them in physical copies of her albums and i remember at one of her shows she said something like it was like i really need you guys for my well-being which is definitely healthy and then finally just the whole kind of universe around taylor swift easter eggs and in obsessing over some minute thing that probably doesn't have any meaning in a in one of her music videos so we're already in a situation where taylor has released more about herself than she could know about anyone in her fan base and that being said that does not give her fans the right to be invasive into her life being attached to her or her music is fine but there is a line and blocking the streets where she attends a friend's wedding or when a rumor is spread that she is in a town that she isn't is crossing a line and it's fucking psychotic so when taylor and travis kelsey went out i think it was after the game i'm not honestly sure it's really not that hard to understand why he rented out the entire restaurant i can't think of anyone in recent memory who got swarmed to this extent maybe justin bieber or like one direction their respective peaks of popularity but fucking hell zendaya can go to a an ice hockey game and not get swarmed and there's a reason for it and i'll let you decide what you think it is i also want to talk about the joe jonas sophie turner divorce but i really can't be arsed to do that this week so i'll save that for next week so yeah that's kind of all i've got to talk about this week so thank you and goodbye